Latinos are the largest ethnic minority in the United States. Latinos are the future of American voting. There are 32 million Latino eligible voters this year. Seven and a half million of them are naturalized citizens. Growing power of the Latino vote in America in the first time in American history, it exceeds the number of black eligible voters in a presidential election. However, since his time as a candidate for the presidency in 2016, Donald Trump's language towards the Latino immigrant community has been charged, especially against the Mexican community. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. A national survey in 2018 found that four in 10 Latinos in the U.S. say they've experienced racist incidents or discrimination. A man in New York yelling at two women because they were speaking Spanish in a restaurant, threatening to call immigration enforcement. I'm an American, ma'am. No, you're not. You're yes. a they dirty Mexican. A group of Hispanic children in Denver called racist names as they were doing work for a local nonprofit. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking to the biggest projected non-white electorate in the U.S., the Latinx community. We'll hear what their key voting issues are and what a Biden or second Trump presidency will mean to them. A note before we continue, in this episode, we'll be using the words Latinx, Latino, Latina, and Hispanic to refer to the same community. The terms are reflective of the diversity of the population and of how members of the community choose to identify themselves. To help walk us through the story, we reached out to a prominent journalist who works at one of the biggest Hispanic networks in the U.S., Univision. I identify as an immigrant, first and foremost. This is Leon Krause. He's an anchor for Univision in Los Angeles, a columnist for The Washington Post, and a podcast host for Slate. I am the grandson of immigrants. My uh, grandparents immigrated to Mexico in the early 20th century. I am also the father of an immigrant. My son came with us when he was very young, and now I am also the father of two American citizens. So. In a way, my experience embodies the experience of the audience I work for. How would you describe the Latino, Latinas, Latinx population living in the United States? I think that we are, of course, far from monolithic. The differences between the Cuban-American community in Florida, the Dominican community in New York, are very large. We don't care necessarily about the same issues, and, uh, and that's okay. We share a common core as Americans, but we really do care about different things. And just think of immigration. It is simply not an issue with Florida voters. Why would it be, right? I mean, the experience of the Cuban-American community is just radically different from the Mexican-American community. Now, is this ideal? Probably not. I wish there was more empathy within this very diverse community, especially around uh, immigration, because what we have seen in the last few years is a moral outrage. It goes beyond politics. It goes beyond ideology. Latinos are predicted to be the biggest non-white voting bloc for the first time in history this election, but we are also living through a pandemic. So I just want to run over the numbers 
Over 900,000 of the country's Latinos diagnosed with COVID. More than 21,000 of them have died. That's according to the CDC's most recent numbers. More than 3 million are unemployed because of the pandemic, and 4 in 10 Latino families with kids are going hungry. The disparity in cases of COVID-19 in America soaring among the Hispanic population. Latinos are three times as likely to test positive for COVID-19. 49% of Latino households have seen job losses or pay cuts in this pandemic. So when it comes to politics in the United States, what effect will numbers like these have? Will they drive people to the polls? I am hoping that the effects of the pandemic actually help with turnout because of the outrage that the effect of coronavirus on the Latino community has caused. Of course, the problem with the Hispanic electorate has always been turnout. I mean, only 48% of eligible voters turned out to vote in 2016 among uh, Latinos. This is 12 points less than African-American voters. There are many reasons. Some are afraid of, of going through the process that this entails. They don't have the money for it. Some do not trust democracy or, or do not understand why it's both crucial and useful. Some first and even second generation Hispanics come from countries where democracy has long been delegitimized. The Hispanic electorate needs to be re-educated on why voting matters in the United States, on why their vote counts. And then, of course, some say that the campaigns just don't address their needs directly. This has changed in, in the last few months. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign is a fascinating example of the opposite. But I'm hoping that it will be a before and after for the Hispanic electorate in 2020. We wanted to hear from voters in the Latinx community about what matters the most to them when selecting a candidate. So we reached out to several people across the country, and here's what they told us. My name is Jose Rodriguez, and I live in Rio Rico, Arizona. I am 21 years old, and I am a first-time Latina voter. I will be voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because I know that the country's future will be in better hands with them. My name is Yasmina Saavedra from Los Angeles, California. I'm a 51-year-old Latina woman who will vote for Donald J. Trump because he's been doing a great job. I'm voting for Trump because he represents my values, my American dreams. We also heard from Latinos who are running for local offices. My name is Nestor Castillo. I'm running for Hayward City Council in California. I believe our city is ready for progressive change, and I'm running to represent Hayward's working families. Nestor will vote for Biden, even though he's not a big fan of his policies or of his running mate, Kamala Harris. I'm planning to vote for Joe Biden because I believe that the threat of Donald Trump another four years is something that could undo our democracy altogether. If we elect Biden, I also worry that we will go back to everything is fine, sort of replay the Obama years, which were actually weren't that great. The fact that during the Obama years, many immigrants were deported. So, you know, I think both of the choices, one, of course, much better than the other, but there is still much work to be done after November 3rd. My name is Monica Marquez, and I live in Houston, Texas, and I 
I'm Latina. Monica voted for Trump in 2016, but she says in 2020, things are different. This year, honestly, I'm voting Democrat. And the reason why I'm voting Democrat has nothing to do with health care or school funding or immigration laws. I'm just going to vote Democrat this year in the hopes that all this, you know, violence and all this nonsense that it's going on, hopefully will stop or calm down a little bit. So we have also heard of an increase of racial attacks towards Latinos in the country since 2016. Do you think this is a direct effect of the president's rhetoric towards parts of the Latino community? Well, we know this is a fact. <laughs> Listen, when the horrendous tragedy happened in El Paso. They huddled in the aisles, hit on the ground and between clothing racks, while a man with a long gun stalked them through the store. A racist manifesto posted online before the shooting claimed, quote, this attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. He didn't say anything. He walked in and started shooting at everybody. When that shooting happened in El Paso, and we learned of the shooter's motives, there is simply no way around it. The president's rhetoric and what this deranged young man saw on television and on the propaganda machine of the white supremacist right in America simply drove him to mass murder. And to say otherwise is just naive or perverse, your choice or a combination. Hate speech matters. Hate speech has consequences. And when that comes from the president of the United States, it has consequences worldwide. Have you ever felt fearful while living here or nervous or had reason to fear while living here? I would never dare compare my experiences to the experience of the people I interview every day. I have been lucky enough to have every possible visa stamped on my passport. Having said this, in the last few years, there have been many times, many times, working for Univision, riding on the Univision truck, wearing a Univision shirt, holding a Univision mic, in which people, and I'm talking about Los Angeles, I mean, mind you, this is Los Angeles, California, the Hispanic capital of the United States, one of the most diverse cities in the country and the world. There have been many times in which people yelled uh, at me and at us, at the team, go back to your country, go back to Mexico, and other words that I cannot share even if this is a podcast. So in that sense, yes, I have felt it. It's undeniable. It's out there because hate speech has consequences and it's contagious. I'm sorry to hear that. It's also just so ironic. <laughs> go back to your country, go back to Mexico on, on land that was well, formerly not yeah. of the United States. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I want to talk about policy now because a path to legal status for the unauthorized is the top immigration policy goal for Latinos living in the United States. And this is according to polls. Yes. Joe Biden has promised to modernize this system, the immigration system, protect the dreamers and their parents, and find a way to offer a path to citizenship for many people in this country. But the reality is that the Obama administration had a nickname, deporter-in-chief. Mm -hmm. Do you think 
Latinos trust Democrats when it comes to this type of promise? I think that the Obama strategy on immigration is misunderstood. It is misunderstood because there are nuances to politics. I am not justifying the brutality of the Obama deportation machine, the sheer numbers of it, because they are unjustifiable. But one has to understand the political reasoning behind that strategy. And I think that what Obama was trying to do was convince the Republicans that he could also be tough on immigration, tough enough that the Republicans could join him in passing some sort of immigration reform. This was a severe miscalculation on Obama's side. And when he realized as much, the administration changed the deportation priorities and adjusted. Was it too late? Maybe it was too late, but it adjusted. When I heard Vice President Biden promise something as significant as what we heard on immigration without any further explanation, I was very worried. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. You should always explain to the American people on immigration or any other important issue that the president of the United States does not have absolute power. There is a Congress. Without a Democratic Senate, there is absolutely no way that we are going to have comprehensive immigration reform. That is one of the main issues that Obama faced and why he had to turn to executive action with DACA. So I think that former Vice President Biden should have said, of course I promise this, if we get control of Congress, because without Congress, nothing can be done. And now he's on the record promising, like we have heard many times before, things that without Congress, he will simply not be able to deliver. As the biggest minority group in the United States, Latinos account for around 60 million people, but only about half are eligible to vote. My name is Jens Manuel Krogstad, and I'm a senior writer and editor at the Pew Research Center, where I focus on Latino trends and immigration. We asked Jens Manuel why only 32 million Latinos are eligible to vote in this election. The Latino population is is different from other groups, particularly in two ways. Latinos are quite young, and a lot of them are U.S.-born, so they just haven't turned to 18 yet. The other reason that we see so many Latinos that are not eligible to vote is because they have a relatively large number of immigrants. Nearly one in five Latinos are immigrants. Now, some of them are naturalized and are eligible to vote, but there are a fair number who aren't naturalized and are not eligible to vote. In every presidential election in the U.S., there are battleground states. These are states frequently divided when it comes to voting. So they could swing either way, Democratic or Republican. That's why you usually see candidates visiting those places more than others. This year, we have nine, and only two of those, Arizona and Florida, make up for 44% of all Latino-eligible voters in battleground states. When we look at nine battleground states, for 2020, we find that Latinos are a little more likely to support Trump. 37% said so compared with only 29% among all Hispanic registered voters. And this is in large part due to the fact that Florida is considered a battleground state this year. 
And Florida, of course, has a large Cuban population that tends to uh, lean Republican. But when you count all eligible Latino voters in the nine battleground states... It's important to keep in mind still about half or more of Latino-eligible voters uh, say they back Biden. So Biden still leads among Latinos in these battleground states. So I want to talk about the Republicans now and specifically how the Republicans and Donald Trump might do in two battleground states, Florida and Arizona. So Florida. We've seen how Cuban-Americans have shaped the Latino vote for years under the Republicans. And then recently, we found out that the Florida director of a prominent pro-Trump Latino organization is the chairman of the Proud Boys, a far-right group associated with white supremacy and acts of violence. How do you think Latinos can relate to this type of rhetoric that actually goes against them? The Latino electorate in, in Florida has been subjected for a while now to severe misinformation campaigns. This idea, for example, that Joe Biden is the reincarnation of Fidel Castro or that he's a pawn of the far left, that Joe Biden is not really Joe Biden but in like a Mission Impossible kind of moment, if he wins, he will take off his mask. And underneath Joe Biden, you will find Bernie Sanders <laughs> or evil Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or even worse, Raul Castro or, or Nicolás Maduro. This is, of course, ridiculous. The voters in the Democratic Party chose a moderate. The definition of a moderate within the Democratic Party, which is Joe Biden. And Joe Biden chose Kamala Harris, whom in California has been considered a centrist in many issues. So this is, evidence suggests, ridiculous. But we are living in the age of misinformation. And I think many Florida voters have chosen to believe because they have experienced deep trauma, and that's absolutely understandable, that the Democratic Party in its current incarnation represents the threat of communism. Even though this is just not true, demonstrably so, they have chosen to believe it is. And I think that explains why Trump's numbers in Florida are better with the Hispanic electorate than mostly anywhere else. And when you talk to pollsters there and to democratic strategists there, what they tell you is we are late to the game. We haven't countered this misinformation campaign effectively, and that will have consequences. Will the consequences be severe enough to push Florida to the red column on November the 3rd? We don't know, but it could happen. I want to talk about voter suppression when it comes to this community. We are speaking to people and we know of cases of immigrants who are green card holders and they wanted to become naturalized citizens to vote, but there are fees attached to that, and these high naturalization fees increased during the Trump administration, and they've made it impossible for some people to afford to pay for it before this deadline of the election. Would you consider this voter suppression, and, and what does voter suppression look like in the Latino community? Listen, I consider the whole anti-immigration agenda in the Trump administration and the Republican Party for a while now, including self-deportation as, as a project, voter suppression. And this has got to do with the history of the United States. When you look at what the Republican Party is doing with 
the Hispanic community, what they're trying to do is they are trying to prevent the Latino community, the immigrant community, from taking their place inside the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. They are trying to prevent the immigrant community from becoming citizens and voting because they know that they will likely vote democratic. So how hard is it to become a citizen in the United States? For many, it's a financial challenge. My name is Nancy Cermeño. I am 34 years old. I am Latina living in Florida. Nancy is from Nicaragua and lives in Miami-Dade County, where almost 70% of the population is Hispanic. I wanted to vote this year, and in November of last year, I was planning on beginning my naturalization process to become a U.S. citizen. But I was looking for a job. I was unemployed. I had just finished grad school. But I knew how important this election was going to be. And I really wanted to start that process. And unfortunately, I didn't get a job until January. And then, you know, things happen that take priority, health reasons, my air conditioning broke. To become a citizen in the U.S., you have to pay $725 between the application and biometric fees. But in Nancy's case, she also wanted her parents to be naturalized. So she needed over $2,000. I saw an opportunity for a grant that would help me get my citizenship and pay for all the costs, and I applied for myself and my parents. Many Latinos in the U.S. are not fluent in English. That can also be a challenge to become a citizen, because as part of the process, you have to take an oral test in English, even though the U.S. doesn't have an official language. My parents have been reluctant to get their citizenship, They're worried that the test will be very difficult and it's in English and my parents to this day don't really speak English fluently. So I wanted to do it with them and I had convinced them. Unfortunately, they didn't get the grant. However, the Trump administration has been pushing to increase the naturalization fee to $1,160. A judge blocked this from going to effect, but it's still possible. So right now it's getting harder for me to become a citizen and also I want to do it with my parents and then the prices just keep getting higher. Tomorrow, the United States might elect a new president. But if it doesn't, we were curious to hear what Leon Krause thinks will happen. What will the future of the Latino community be or what might it be under a second Trump administration term? Mm. I thought you were going to end up on a, on a very optimistic note and say, you know, <laughs> tell me about the future of the, of the Latino community, period. <laughs> I think that odds are Joe Biden would be the next president of the United States. But if that doesn't happen and Donald Trump wins re-election, there will be deep despair within the... Hispanic community. But no one should mistake that despair for any willingness to give up on the American ideal and the American dream. 
If Trump wins on November the 3rd, the young man whom I just met a few days ago in the orange orchards of Ventura County, Prisciliano, will still wake up at 5.30 a.m. and go work and fill 65-pound bags of oranges time and time and time again through the day. And the meatpacking workers and the dairy farmers in Wisconsin that I've interviewed and the construction workers in Houston and in Florida. They are not going anywhere. This is their country. This is our country. Proudly so. We love this country. They love this country. If Trump wins, they will stay and they will fight as they have been fighting forever because that's the nature of the Hispanic community and the immigrant community. That's the definition of an immigrant. We do not give up. And especially we do not give up on the country that has for much better than worse, opened its arms to us. And that's The Take. Before we go, we wanted to give you a heads up about something we have planned for Election Day here in the U.S. The Take team and I will be going live on Instagram from 4 p.m. Eastern to 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday with special guests throughout to give you a breakdown on all the day's events. And we want you to be part Join us on the Al Jazeera English Instagram account. That's Al Jazeera English, all one word, on Instagram. Click on the profile picture while we're live and join in on the conversation by using the comment box. We'd love to hear from you. Today's episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Dina Kispe, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Oni Wohacha, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>